0: masters almost we'll surely have
1: a plan there's clearly maybe something there will be on the realm of man. but until you've thoroughly tested every last close just a few. find the more you think you know the last.
2: This is the way, Higher Side Chatters, doing what we do from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and is there any more persistent deception than the overarching idea subtly woven throughout reality that as individuals we are essentially powerless? That to live outside of the cookie cutter, cradle to grave, cog in the wheel, company man life path is so risky and success so unlikely that we might as well just play it safe? Get your education, accept your middle management position, pay your mortgage, eat your slop, consume your nightly news, and never bother to take the reins of your life because it could all just come crashing down. We're told our mindsets make little difference in the matter-first universe, yet a mountain of evidence from ESP studies and the power of prayer to a legacy of magical ritual and esoteric techniques show us that what happens in our minds and where we direct our focus might actually be some of the most important things to get right if we want our situations to improve. So the big system becomes an operation in belief management, education becomes pre-approved fact regurgitation, news becomes aggressively fear-based, and culture is reduced to a sneaky siren coaxing our mental ships to crash against the rocks of distraction, depression, and disappointment. But when I read the work of today's guest, Mitch Horowitz, I am reminded of the research that says there is real power in positive thought, that there's real value in clearly defining and aiming at one's goals, and that spiritual forces are not only real, they're most likely the most important tools we've been neglecting. For the uninitiated, Mitch is an author and lecturer focused on areas like alternative spirituality, outsider history, and the long-standing quest to bring empowerment and agency back into the human condition. He has written on everything from the occult influences on Ronald Reagan to the checkered career of professional skeptic James Randi for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Time, Salon, Big Think, Politico, Boing Boing, and a wide range of zines and scholarly journals. His books include Occult America, White House Seances, Ouija Circles, Masons, and the Secret Mystic History of Our Nation, One Simple Idea, How the Lessons of Positive Thinking Can Transform Your Life, The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality, and has recently released collection of essays and articles on the occult and outsider experiences, Uncertain Places, just to name a few. A guest who's been requested many times around here, the new thought thinker, captain of The Miracle Club, and occult author extraordinaire, Mitch, welcome to The Higher Side. Thank you, my man. Glad to be here. Yeah, man, this is going to be great. I read Occult America and The Miracle Club years ago and really enjoyed both. But we are doing the dance today because Inner Tradition sent me your latest book, the collection of essays called Uncertain Places, and there is a lot to like about it. UFOs, ESP research, hermeticism, and more. But to kick this off and sort of play off that intro there, materialism can be a very deeply rooted assumption in Western minds. Let's bust that up a bit. When you're talking to someone who doesn't see an individual's mind as consequential to the outside world or that there's much value in our inner world at all, what are some of the go to data points to show that the mind can have an influence on the outside world and matter might be more malleable than we are led to believe?
0: The data is extraordinary. We probably have at this point about 80 years of data emerging from academic ESP research that demonstrates an extra physical effect that not only demonstrates the ability of mind-to-mind communication, but of the ability of people's minds to glean information in ways that violate time, space, distance, material. Not only that, but really, I would say, emergent over the past 20 years or so, we have wonderful experiments in precognition that actually demonstrate a cognitive improvement to tasks you apply yourself to, When you continue studying after the fact, it violates all commonly observed properties of philosophical materialism, of most of our linear experience of day-to-day life. But it's there. It's real. It's bulletproof. And it's something that I encourage people to experiment with. Plus, it hardly needs saying to your audience that the founders of quantum mechanics themselves all believed in a perceptually based Reality. These were the founders of world class science in the 20th and 21st century, and all of them were philosophical idealists as opposed to materialists. They believe that perception determines reality that can be conditioned by a lot of countervailing factors, but it's as real as the floorboards beneath our feet. Fields like neuroplasticity, advances in placebo response research, and such have all affirmed this perceptual basis of reality. It's an exciting time to be alive because materialism or the philosophy that matter creates itself and that nothing exists outside of standard Newtonian laws, which I don't think Isaac Newton himself would have agreed with. They often say Christ was not a Christian, Newton was not a Newtonian. Hmm. And we live in a world where these things are having a real impact on our culture, our sense of ourselves. And it's something that I encourage the individual to experiment with. Wow.
2: Well said. (laughs) It's like you've done this before. But that point about studying something after the fact, having kind of nonlinear effects, that's something I didn't really expect to get into, but I am intrigued by violations of linear cause and effect. Can you elaborate on that particular
0: piece of the puzzle and
2: the best evidence we have for that?
0: Sure. Sure. About 10 years ago, a psychologist at Cornell named Daryl Bem published a paper based on a decade of study, and he was experimenting with the question of precognition, whether we can see into the so-called future, and I say so-called because we really live in a reality where we understand time to be conditional, time bends in certain circumstances, and The notion that time is this uninterrupted law of linearity, although we certainly experience it as such, and it may be necessary for five sensory beings to experience it as such, it's not the final truth. It's not the final answer. It's not the ultimate or absolute of the reality that we live in. So in short, in Bem's most exciting experiments, he gave subjects a simple word test. You memorize a certain number of words, and then you repeat back however many you're capable of remembering. So if it's a list of 10 words, maybe you remember five, six, something of that nature. He then added a wrinkle to the test where he asked his subjects to study the word list again after giving their replies. In the second step, when they studied a word list again after delivering their replies, their responses spiked. The spike was small, but it was substantial and it was replicated over thousands of trials. Now it's helpful to be writing about BEM's work 10 years down the road because it's been meta-analyzed and it's proven confirmatory in a study that consisted of 90 samples in 33 different labs in 14 different nations. the confirmatory response pretty much match the level of BEM's original experiments. So the challenge is, if you do something, whatever it is that you're engaged in, whether it's an athletic pursuit, whether it's cognitive, whatever it may be, there's evidence to show that your cognition and your performance can spike based on things that you do in the future. It sounds so Twilight Zone and so outside of our ordinary way of viewing the world, but it actually is not violative of Einstein's theories of space-time. It's not violative of theses and theories that have entered the conversation to explain the surreal mechanical activity that we observe in quantum physics. It's just a way of showing that our cognition might not be wholly bound by linear time. And I think it's one of the most exciting areas of psychical research and an area that the individual can experiment with him or herself.
2: Yeah, no doubt. Very exciting. I heard you talking to Duncan Trussell not too long ago, and I think it was Bem's work you were discussing and you made the point, which I think is a good one, that his experiments were vetted harder than a lot of pharmaceuticals on the market today, but still not accepted, which is odd because we take a lot of things into our body with less
0: vetting than this very research. That is so right on. And it's such an important point. Even Bem's most vociferous critics, and he's got plenty, celebrate him for his transparency. What Bem did in these experiments is almost unprecedented in the social sciences. He obviously understood that this data was going to be highly controversial. So he took a unique step. He made his software available free to anybody who asked. This was at his own expense. He prepared an instruction manual that would allow other researchers to replicate his experiments. And he threw open the file drawer, so to speak, so that critics, supporters, curious people, whomever, could review his research in detail. It was an unprecedented degree of transparency, especially in, in the social sciences, where people very jealously guard their results and their methodology because they're worried about pushback and they're usually writing their articles just so they can check off a box in their tenure application and so forth. And BEM's transparency was virtually unprecedented. That's why the sample was so large. 10 years hence in the meta-analysis that confirmed his work. He showed a lot of bravery, a lot of ethics, a lot of transparency. And of course, his critics attack him based on the tautological response that precognition cannot be real because precognition cannot be real, because it violates common observation, which is a terrible yardstick for the pursuit of knowledge. And BEM has really opened a door for people to continue these experiments either in a clinical situation or in private, for that matter. It's just an extraordinary turning of a page, I think, in psychical research.
2: Yeah, it totally is. And to kind of get a little deeper into how we find ourselves in this situation, I like this quote where you say, we possess statistical evidence as good as any for the anomalous transfer of information or ESP in laboratory settings. But that fact raises more questions than it answers and is rejected by a modernist intelligentsia that regards countervailing evidence to materialism as the catechist does heresy. Well, I love it. And isn't that interesting? What do you make of this cultural paradigm we have where we are presented with the experts of this, quote, intelligentsia, and they do dismiss all of this evidence of mind? Do you think they are... Being genuinely blinded by a dogma, or are they trying to steer regular folks away from something useful and powerful?
0: You know, it's an interesting question, Greg. And one of the things I write about in the book is that when I debate the skeptics, and I do seek out skeptics to debate, as William Blake wrote, opposition is true friendship, and we don't get better at something unless there's a certain degree of resistance. I really hit the limits of my understanding of human nature because I could sit back and I could engage in the same armchair analysis that anybody could about why people display this blinding lack of curiosity or this absolute airtight closure to new ideas or evidence Sure, you know, I could say it's fear based. I could say it's their training. I could say it's the legacy of modernist culture. And there's all kinds of possibilities that hold water. But I find that their resistance is so strict and so overwhelming that even though I like to consider myself a student of human nature, I hit a wall. I can't understand why some of the contemporary skeptics like Steven Pinker, for example, at Harvard, who I recently engaged in a exchange with about BEM's work, I can't understand the absolute unwillingness to even crack open the door to a question, the lack of curiosity. It's almost like dealing with a kind of counter-fundamentalism, a mirror fundamentalism, you know, Jacob Needleman, the philosopher who died several weeks ago, used to say that the definition of fundamentalism is, I'm right, you're wrong, which is a pretty good definition. It doesn't hinge on being religious. It doesn't hinge on any one particular culture, what have you. That's exactly the mindset that you find among many of the skeptics. And I hit a wall in understanding what their motives are.
2: Mm. Yeah. Cheers to that. It is really tough to uncover motives, especially if some people aren't even aware of them themselves. But let's talk about how a person can and should be using this information, their mind, their intention, their belief. You write, psychological dimensions of belief are incredibly powerful. Believing in the possibility of an outcome, as William James noted, may be the vital ingredient for that outcome to occur at all. See, I think that is true. It's something I've experienced in my own life. And I know people who really struggle with self-doubt to a degree that they just don't take any chances and live a life they aren't fulfilled by, working a job they actively dislike, this kind of thing, because they don't believe it could be any better or they overfocus on the thoughts of how worse it could get. What would you say to help those people?
0: We all fear consequence that's common to human nature. And obviously fear of consequence is necessary to some extent if our ancient ancestors didn't fear consequence, they might have gotten eaten by saber-toothed tigers or what have you. So it's obviously baked into the human situation and there are good reasons for it, but it gets so baked in that we use fear of consequence as an excuse for inertia. And one of the things William James pointed out is that we all live by a maybe. If there's not a maybe in our lives, we're completely static and frozen. And I think that we all have to acknowledge whatever our perspective on life, there's an element of maybe, there's an element of belief, there's an element of assumption. It's omnipresent. Why not? venture the assumption that you are capable of doing something. That's not an unreasonable assumption. We understand the elements of how we get things done from a cognitive and motor perspective. And I would argue that there are thought agencies that come to our assistance. We've been talking about some of them. If we venture that, that may be. There's always gonna be examples out there in the culture of somebody who takes a disastrously depleting action. But I've personally found in life that disaster usually arises from inertia. Disaster usually arises from saying no to opportunities, from not making a leap, from determining that I understand exactly what's going on and I'm not gonna get roped into this. I've had more tragedies a rise in life from saying no to something good, than venturing a slightly risky yes, you'll feel more alive. And the likelihood is that the consequences will not be what you fear. It may be an aspect of human nature, and this may be universal, with the exception of a few people who seem to have a particular gift for getting themselves into scrapes. But most of us exaggerate consequences. And I found that again and again. So for example, if a person is in a situation, let's say, where they feel really depleted by their surroundings, whether it's work-based, whether it's their social group, their peers, whatever it is, they fear that exiting these surroundings is almost gonna amount to a kind of social or economic starvation. That virtually never occurs. And yet, the exaggerated sense of consequence is such that year after year after year, we remain in the same chair, so to speak, and sometimes literally, without ever venturing beyond that cave. And we don't know what's beyond that cave, but if a person is suffering, then I think it's a necessary wager and probably a very vivifying wager to say, I'm unhappy in this cave, I wanna see what's beyond it. At least you'll know. I mean, without verification, There's no search. People recite these truisms all the time about what constitutes happiness in life, but one doesn't really know unless you're in the midst of it, unless you're experiencing it. And I think that to be human is almost to embark on gambits, embark on wagers. Obviously, a person has to know what he or she is doing, you don't step into a, a, a boxing ring if you don't have experience in that particular world. But to never do so, I think it's denying a basic part of what it means to be human. I think it results in a lot of sorrow, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety.
2: Yes, yes, I agree. And I often think, why do so many people default to focusing on the negative? Is it natural or is it engineered? I mean, our news cycle certainly doesn't give us much to be optimistic about. And then I think, well, if where our attention goes and our mental polarity is so key to the manifestation of our experience, that is almost criminal to not promote some positive stories in that 24-hour news cycle. It just seems like, Everything is slanted to the negative, but when people kind of scoff at this idea that we do manifest our reality from our actions, which start as thoughts, I say, okay, well, so you don't really like your job managing the dairy section at the grocery store. Okay, But you did manifest that. You saw they were hiring. You filled out the application. You put your best foot forward through three interviews and you show up on time day after day. You are manifesting. You're just aiming at things that you don't even want.
0: I think that's absolutely true. And there's a lot of safety involved in things that we think we can get our arms around. I think that as step one, the individual has to understand apropos of what you were just saying, that there is an element of choice in all of this. There is absolutely an element of choice. I find, for example, that people sometimes complain to me around the holiday season that they feel humiliated by their in-laws or some other family member, or they feel misunderstood in social settings. And they never even give themselves the wiggle room Mentally, emotionally, to realize that being in those situations is a choice. And as I was saying earlier, there may be consequences if you exit that. There are consequences no matter what we do, most of them unforeseen. But if a person feels that they're egregiously misunderstood in their social group or in their job or what have you, they may say, well, you know, I have economic needs, I have social needs, I have emotional needs. If I was to exit this unhappy situation, everything could blow up in my face. And it's true, there are needs present. But at the same time, one has to realize that you're deferring to those needs. You don't really know what will happen. Personally speaking, And I say this just from my own intimate experience. Anytime I've exited a situation where I felt misunderstood, for example, or I felt like I was around people that I just wasn't grokking to, I have been happier. I have been much happier. I'm happier today at age 57 than I was at age 17 or at age 27, in large measure because of that. I have never found that the consequences were anywhere near as heavy as I was thinking. And sometimes, as it happens, there were none at all. The point is just to get in touch with what you were describing, Greg, which is that there is a choice present, because if one doesn't acknowledge that, then it's almost like we're rowing a boat with one oar, and we're not. There are two oars in the water. There may be problems that arise from that rowing, but we do have two oars in the water. You've effectively told yourself almost hypnotized yourself to believe that there's only one if you don't acknowledge the factor of choice.
2: Mm. Really good advice. I hope as we're going into a new year and people have opportunities to think about the direction of their lives and wipe the slate clean and change direction that they ponder some of that advice. And Let's talk about some of the stuff in your first essay in Uncertain Places, Reclaiming the Damned, Toward a New Understanding of Bigfoot, Flying Saucers, Leprechauns, and Other Inconvenient Realities, because I, too, am a Charles Fort fan. I love paranormal encrypted encounter stories, especially ones that don't fit into the conventional categories, and it's not to say these things aren't real, but belief does come into play, Many times the story starts with, I had the thought to look behind me, or I thought how cool it would be to see a UFO, and then bam, I saw one. What do you think of that relationship between our minds and these Fortean experiences?
0: One of the things I probe in that essay is whether there's a psychical dimension to all of our experiences, including anomalous encounters, UFO sightings. Experiences that might run the gamut from cryptids to poltergeist experiences. It's not that these things aren't real. One of the things that I suggest is that we may be, through our psyches, capable of moving through different intersections of time, which relates back to the precognition experiments we were discussing. And as such, It's possible that there is a kind of selectivity that emerges from our perspective or our emotionally charged thoughts or our emotionally charged assumptions or convictions. It could be that at every instant, including this one right now as we're speaking, we are taking measurement through our senses and what are our senses really, but biological instruments of measurement in a manner that's not entirely different from what goes on in a lab. When we see in a particle lab, for example, measurements are taken and objects that are in superposition assume a place of locality. They assume an actuality, a reality. This is lawful. This is emergent from 90 or so years of quantum mechanics experiments nobody challenges the data the data is not controversial at least not anymore what's controversial are the implications and i think we owe it to ourselves to experiment with some of these implications because the fact is it is almost a logical requirement from what we've discovered emergent from study of the behavior of material in the 20th and now the 21st century, to allow for the fact that infinite outcomes exist and there are infinite realities perhaps concurrently playing out. The thought experiment called Schrodinger's Cat back in 1935 has pretty much established that as part of the paradigm of both physical and perceptual understanding in the 21st century. And I think we have to be brave about pondering these implications and asking ourselves, when we use a term like manifest, for example, maybe the term that we really ought to be using is select. Maybe there's a psychical process that is concurrent. With the physical process of exquisitely fine measurement. And exquisitely fine measurement reveals things, actualizes things, brings things into an experiential level of reality. And this may not be something that's just confined to the particle lab, and it actually goes beyond particles, but this may be something that's part of a psychical process as well. Again, this touches upon some of the precog experiments I was describing. This may have something to do with the UFO experience. And then it begs the question of, well, what are the conditions under which these things occur? Can we replicate these conditions? Can we induce these conditions? And I think that it's an area that begs us as a generation to experiment with.
2: Yes, so well said. Cheers to that. I absolutely wish there was more experimentation in pushing up against that. Like, instead of asking the question, is it or isn't it for another three decades, let's just assume it is and then push up against how to make the experiences more repeatable, more potent, all that kind of stuff. Because the data at the quantum level is very interesting and it might provide a foundation or some scaffolding to explain the unexplainable. But when you try to scale it up to a UFO or cryptid sighting experience, it is quite difficult to do. And you write in the book that the folklore of, say, fairy folks or little trickster beans, I mean, it extends across Central America, Ireland, Polynesia, West Africa. Very distant groups of people realized that if you start to, as you say, if you start talking about these beans, wood sprites, fairies, or brownies, and you invite them into your life, they can show up and cause mischief. So a lot of people are like, we don't talk about that because I do think it's real, but I can't allow it to be spoken of or it will come to me. That again gets into that realm of how thoughts are related, but I still struggle with the mechanism of like what triggers that. Is the leprechaun in control of its appearance to man or is it victim to some random roll of the dice as is the person who sees it? That kind of stuff.
0: Well, I'm interested in the implications of string theory because string theory was devised to try to harmonize and explain some of the surreal behavior of matter, not only on the particle level, but on the macro level as well, where we experience a kind of mirror effect where macro objects and micro particles affect one another at distances with no obvious causation. This is what Einstein slightly derisively referred to as spooky action at a distance. And the basis of string theory is that all things that exist are on these undulating bands of strings. And there are different intersections of time or different dimensions where things are going on all the time, just like in hours, and they may be affecting things that we experience in hours. It's possible that at sensitive moments, although we don't know, our psyches might travel amidst these different intersections of time, maybe at a moment of extreme passion. And as such, we may be catching a wink or a glimpse of something that's real, that's occurring, that's affecting life in our own range of experience, but that exists in a so-called other dimension or other intersection of time. And perspective itself may actualize things. And I must add, not only extraordinary things, but ordinary things as well. It could be that at every instant of life, we are selecting in effect. And with that selection comes a whole sense of so-called past, present, future. All these things, the past in particular, seem completely fixed to us, but we don't really know how reality works in any ultimate sense. We only are peeking through a keyhole on our knees in terms of our ordinary frame of reference. But it could be that at each instant, including this one right now, all of us are perceiving things that are concretely real and that bring with them a kind of perspective on the past that seems absolutely actual, absolutely fixed, but we could be crisscrossing among infinite possibilities and outcomes all the time. And it's an extraordinary prospect. And it's something that I ask people to consider in terms of their daily experience. I'm friends with a novelist who, when he was a little kid, dreamt of publishing novels as an adult. And he used to draw pictures of these book jackets and so forth from his Future predictive novels. And he would include quotes or endorsements on these book jackets. And he included one from the horror writer Clive Barker, who was a literary hero of his. He's now a grown man, has his first novel out. And sure enough, there's a cover quote, a cover endorsement from Clive Barker. And he wondered, was I paving the way for this as a little kid? Or does my perception of the past in a real and actual way? change itself, rearrange itself, because I conceptualized this in the here and now, and that brought with it a whole sense of where it occurred when I was a kid. It's just something to consider because we're so acclimated to thinking of time in this straight arrow way, but we have evidence that that's not really true, that time is conditional, that time bends, that we're not just locked into this linear framework. So we may be much more powerful than we've been brought up to understand.
2: Yeah, that is so interesting. And I often do think, like, looking at the job I have now, in retrospect, I've had little experiences that pushed me towards this, or they fit with the whole story where they wouldn't have had I not done this job. And I think that's just really interesting. I wonder if, given, let's assume that model is kind of true, that, like, you have many selves, I guess, across time. I wonder if there's a way to tap into your future self or to find a better relationship with this other version of yourself, your unconscious, your subconscious mind, and like string yourself along or pull yourself from the future towards your optimal life.
0: Well, one of the things I think a person needs to start with is real, unembarrassed, intimate clarity about what that optimal life is because we all think that we know what we want but we're victims of peer pressure we're victims of cultural and societal pressure we internalize these things and it's kind of shocking to find and i encounter this in myself the very rote quality of the things that we repeat to ourselves internally and william james used to feel that self-image is destiny and Our menu of inner talking is really limited. There's a very fixed number of thoughts and ideas and self-perceptions that we repeat to ourselves. And I ask people to take some time out in private. Don't share it with anybody. It's your own exquisitely internal private exercise. And ask yourself as though for the first time, what do I really want in life? And forget everything. Forget what you've been conditioned to think is right or wrong or is high-minded or is shallow or is superficial or whatever. All these are just words, and we inure these things internally, and they can become very limited. It's really internalized peer pressure in a certain way. Forget everything. Forget all the messaging. You know, so many things that we take as hardcore truth, as absolute truth, are just, Familiar to us by dint of repetition. And I always tell people, familiarity is not truth. Every culture on earth has a circumstance where a certain set of ideas, maybe a set of religious ideas, a set of materialist ideas, gets so heavily repeated that we think it's absolutely fixed. But these things are just conceptual. These things are just notions of reality that have been crafted by human hands. So give yourself a break and allow yourself in a completely unembarrassed way to ask, what do I want? And if you do that, you'll almost always come to a surprising answer. So I think that a clarity, absolute clarity within, and keep it to yourself, is the first step in directing the possibilities of the psyche.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally agree. People go decades, sometimes entire lifetimes, just going with the flow and never even trying to direct it or asking themselves what they really want. It's like so easy to do. And just, it's miraculous that we never get there or it takes so long to get there. There's many distractions. Who is the masked singer this week? I don't know. Uh, there's all these things we get focused on. it They don't matter at all. The sports games and all that, but familiarity is not truth. Man, put that on a T-shirt. I like it. Oh,
0: I may uh, tell that to my friend Josh Romero, who's an artist. We were talking about some new T-shirts. Maybe, yeah. Maybe we'll do a "Familiarity is Not Truth" T-shirt. Uh, you should. You should. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a lot in the book
2: that I do like, but I wanted to jump to some of your comments about conspiracy culture. In the spirit of what you said earlier, opposition is true friendship. Uh, some of these comments are not so flattering. And I like to say the three pillars of this show, the three broad categories of discussion that I have with guests are conspiracy, the paranormal and the occult. Mm-hmm. So we go there quite often. But you say conspiracy theorizing is not the work of independent thinkers. It is the work of those who endanger independent thinkers And that is like a knife in my heart. Uh, I have to ask you to elaborate on what you mean there, because it sounds like something I would very much disagree with.
0: Well, I appreciate you bringing that up. And this is a very live issue for me. And I was talking about this actually with a podcaster yesterday. Let me give you a small piece of background first, for example, about 18 months ago, there's a house up in the town of Poughkeepsie, which is in New York State's Hudson Valley, that was occupied by two members of the Church of Satan. And somebody in a hazmat uniform with his features disguised, doused the house with gasoline, set fire to it. The two residents escaped with their lives, thankfully, but they lost everything. And it was a very dangerous Crime. I presume it to be a hate crime, not just random. And the guy who did it, to my knowledge, has never been caught. People can read about it by putting in the terms I've used into Google, doing a news search. And, you know, frankly, Greg, I get really worried that that kind of thing is, if not in an absolute act of violence but that kind of thinking that contributes to that results from the type of conspiracy theorizing that's always looking for a hidden hand or a hidden enemy that always makes me the hero looking back in the mirror from myself and that makes the bad guys somebody else whether it's satanists or globalists or some conception of a secret group or society. I want to punch holes in the straight story. I absolutely want to punch holes in the straight story and I honor that. But as a lot of conspiracy theorizing plays out in the 21st century and earlier, it strikes me that it very frequently reflects man's perpetual search for a hidden foe. And that hidden foe is almost always On the outside, and I'm almost always the hero of that story. And the bad guy is almost always someone else and somewhere else. And the bad guy very often takes the form of different historical groups that have been the subject of calumny or canards or false rumors, false stories. And that way of thought can become a real habit. I want to poke holes in the straight story. I want to upend materialist assumptions. I want to upend assumptions about how we live or how we think we have to live without that selection of a hidden foe. So that's where I'm coming from with that kind of statement. Fair
2: enough. Fair enough. And, you know, the example you gave, I don't deny that there is a overlap in the Venn diagram between psychological breaks and doing things you shouldn't do and conspiracy thought. But there's an analogy there because you also, in the book, you talk about trying to elevate new age culture, that it is so often judged on the airy fairy starseed kind of people. And that that's kind of dismissive to to emphasize the least among a particular group or who hold a particular view. You know, I try to elevate conspiracy culture in the same way that you might try to elevate new age culture, which is just to be default skeptical of a lot of things that we are told in a mainstream narrative sort of way. And I think if you look at a lot of history, you're going to be right more than 50% of the time By casting some doubt on there. That doesn't have anything to do with a propensity for violence. It's just skepticism of official stories. I mean, and by its nature, when you say conspiracy theorizing is not the work of independent thinkers, I mean, it is though. Without a contingent of people who are skeptical of mainstream perspectives and government actions, we are just eating up establishment talking points. To me, it's the definition of independent thought. If conspiracies, are a threat or something dangerous, I guess I would ask how they should be dealt with. Because is it not more dangerous to not have a space reserved for counterpoints and being critical of the state?
0: Well, you're making a good point, and I appreciate the analogy to New Age, because I am frequently a defender of New Age culture. I apply the term New Age to myself. I describe New Age as a radically ecumenical culture of therapeutic spirituality. So I push back on the mainstream use of the term New Age as a kind of epithet. And I think your point in that regard is well taken. And the reason I said this is a hot issue for me is literally, I was just speaking about this yesterday on a podcast with Connor Habib. Mm. As I urge people not to completely swallow the hand-me-down narratives that they get from skepticism of a professional sort, or that they get from the manner in which most mainstream media covers psychical research, which I care about, it may behoove me to revisit some of my own rejectionism of what I call conspiracist culture. And I am willing to do that. If I didn't do that, I'd be violating some of my own ground principles. I have my concerns. I'm very concerned about the prospect of a new satanic panic. I'm very concerned about violence against accused witches around the world. I'm very concerned about ancient prejudicial tropes, kind of getting dressed up in new language. So I have all those concerns, but I also honor what you just said about your efforts to elevate conspiracist culture because there is something there that intersects with my own efforts to elevate new age culture, which I am attached to, which I am a part of, but which I am also critical of. So if I'm asking people to kind of drop the blinders, drop the prejudices, it behooves me to take my own medicine. So I'm trying to engage that in a real and sincere way. I love it. I thought that would be the common
2: ground for us for sure. And I get what you're saying. And I also have a lot of those same concerns. I don't like when a person loses their mind and then goes and does something terrible, which isn't even directed at power. How often Mm -hmm. are these things just directed at everyday folks? And then the news loves to latch on to what they were looking at online and who they were following. And it's just like, you know, obviously it it hurts my soul a little bit that they would be in my camp to a degree. But I would also say that to put another point on this is the term conspiracy theory. It's pretty well known that it was popularized by the CIA to get people to uh, not be so critical of, of of the system. It was kind of a pejorative, a stigmatization of those who challenged at the time, it was uh, the JFK thing. But there's a pretty good bunch of literature about this, that it was kind of crafted so that you could say, oh, that's just a conspiracy. That's Those people are conspiracy theorists. Don't even look at that. And you have a neat, regular people have a knee jerk reaction to not go down those paths. But when I think about that campaign, I think about the the same way witches and occultists are marginalized groups. I think conspiracy theorists are also kind of on the outside and share the common bond of those who are demonized or at least dismissed by the establishment because of unpopular opinions they hold, which are based on data points. You know, witches and occultists, they have their data points, the kind of mind stuff we've been talking about. Conspiracy theorists have some data points, too.
0: Yeah. I'm open to that. I'm open to that. And the part of what you said that I want to underline is that we have to be sure that we are directing uh, our scrutiny, our criticisms, our energies towards people who hold actual power, not the librarian who wears a pentagram, you know, who could be any one of our best friends but towards those forces that hold actual power. So in this country, for example, almost everybody agrees that our healthcare system is in a kind of shambles. It's wildly expensive. It's fueled by overbilling. We can't seem to make any improvements. And there are all kinds of different policy possibilities that could improve healthcare for people in this country. Some go in a more free market direction. Some go in a more governmental direction. I'm interested in what works, and yet this stalemate is persistent. We can't get in front of pharmaceutical prices when somebody needs insulin or something like that. We can't get in front of fraud in medical billing, which is wild and which probably fuels some of the inflation that we're currently experiencing, especially coming out of the lockdown. I want to be sure that we're directing our umbrage where it belongs at powerful organizations rather than at uh, individuals, you know, who just might be out of step with the mainstream, which I applaud. And I don't want to see those people targeted or victimized.
2: Yes. And that we are totally in agreement. So I'm glad we did talk about that. I was a little on the fence. Am I going to bring this up? Am I going to No, I'm really it glad you did. <laughs> I'm really
0: glad you did. And... um and I'm sitting with it. I'm sitting with it. Yeah.
2: Fair. And let's talk a little bit more about UFOs because we kind of glossed over that. But you do write about Jacques Ballet and his perspective a fair amount. And I get the impression that the association between magic or the occult and UFOs is getting stronger, that oh, they question. relate more— yeah. Fair. Yeah, I think they relate more to consciousness or the paranormal than they do to something like an intergalactic airline. (laughs) I guess, what are your thoughts about that overlap and it being maybe the leading model given the alternative options of what these things in the sky are?
0: Well, Jacques' work has been an influence on me, and Jacques has pioneered the perspective, well, maybe not pioneered, but certainly popularized the perspective that the interdimensional thesis For UFOs, may cover more bases than the ET thesis. It doesn't muscle out the ET thesis. It's not an either or kind of situation, which is another problem that we get into in our culture. We have this magic bullet kind of thinking that if we identify one thing that seems to be valid, that must be the answer. And there can be, of course, a complexity of things going on, as I think occurs with the placebo response, for example. So, I'm hugely interested in the interdimensional thesis for UFOs because it resolves the question of the unfathomable distances that a craft would have to travel without taking that question off the table. But it explains some of this phenomena in a way that relates at least to the data and the implications of the data that we've gathered in the hard sciences over the past 80, 90 years about a perceptual basis of reality, which again, doesn't mean that it's just some sort of a imaginary thought form, but it could be the psyche gleaning things that we're not able through our ordinary instrumentation to get access to all the time. That starts to bring the discussion closer between UFOs and the question of the occult. I've always described the occult as belief in or a wager that there exists another dimension of existence whose effects can be felt on and through us. That's part of the same conversation that Jacques helped to instigate through the popularization of the interdimensional thesis of UFOs these things really start to converge. And that's very, very exciting to me because with the mainstreaming of the UFO thesis, and it's more mainstream today than I could have imagined five, six, seven years ago, could have imagined, it is so absolutely on the public agenda in a way that's just remarkable. That's going to help, I think, crack open the door to further and deeper inquiries into psychical phenomena That gives people who are interested in UFOs and who are interested in the occult or the mystical or the perceptual a lot to talk about. So those conversations are converging, and that's part of the spirit in which I wrote the book.
2: Yes, and it is exciting to see that in the mainstream, to see a New York Times article about stuff, to see ex-military men out there being like, I've seen stuff from the cockpit of my jet that I couldn't explain to see footage coming Mm -hmm. out and the Pentagon not being so quick to just dismiss it and sweep it under the rug. That's great. When I was younger, I really thought like disclosure is going to be this one day it happens. And then now we just know all the secrets. Clearly that was a little naive, but going back to kind of my conspiracy mindset, I worry a little bit about the way it's being framed or how the mainstream establishment is going to Frame this thing up. It's kind of through a military lens. It's kind of through a, is this a threat to national security lens? And really, when you get into the literature, it seems ancient. It seems like this something has always been kind of with humanity. And I just worry about it being twisted around to somehow prop up the budget of the Pentagon or something like, hey, we need more money to solve this problem. I don't know, but be careful what you wish for. You know, I thought I wanted disclosure. (laughs) Now I'm getting it. And it's like, I don't really like how this is being served to us.
0: Well, it's interesting. There are so many different players within the UFO paradigm. And we have to assume, I think, that there are also a complexity of motives. Now, some of the people within the UFO paradigm who I know and who have made the effort towards disclosure, like you were mentioning the New York Times piece by Leslie Keene, Ralph Blumenthal, Helene Cooper, all of whom I think the world of, and I know Leslie personally, and you know we've talked over some of this recently, I think their ethics and motives are absolutely impeccable, and the work that they've done is impeccable. And I think that there are some figures in the government. Who are pro disclosure and who feel that they can get the greatest hearing and funding for some of these efforts by framing it in the very military terms that you were just describing. There are whistleblowers and there are also people who, for whatever reason, and I've never been able to fully get at or understand this, who want to squelch information, who don't want this information to be out there. And they have a variety of factors driving their activities. Now, we're all sitting around waiting for this Pentagon report that was supposed to come out, I guess, in October and hasn't come out yet. That's supposed to be a further study of the DOD report that came out a couple of years ago, maybe 18 months ago. And the reporter in The New York Times, Julian Barnes, had a piece a few months back, which I jokingly refer to as The Empire Strikes Back, where he interviewed his sources within the DOD, and they all said, it's a whole bunch of nothing, it's space junk, it's accidents, blah, blah, blah. It was the same old story. And one of the things that was frustrating about the Barnes article is that Keane, Blumenthal, and Cooper were held to very, very high standards that precluded their using anonymous sources they had to get people by name on the record but barnes's article was based almost completely on anonymous sources so there is a double standard there and i have my questions about that now it could just be cultural it could be that people within mainstream letters are so inured to scoff at the ufo thesis that they lower their standards For a piece like that. Mm. But regardless, there is a difference. There is a difference. And this is probably a foreshadowing of things to come, where, as you were saying, as a kid, one hopes, gee, disclosure is just going to come and it's going to be the parting of the clouds and we'll understand something. But likelihood is disclosure is going to be very messy, very muddled by all kinds of different motives, double standards, and other such things and this is going to track on for some time. <laughs> there may be nothing definitive in our generation, but I do think we have to take a victory lap for the progress that has been made. It's absolutely real, and it's remarkable, and the public interest arguably has never been higher.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I. I just sometimes I think we we wait for the official word. And it's like, I've seen some things and I've talked to enough people who have seen some things that I don't really care that much with the Pentagon thinks about yeah. it. But uh, at the same time, I'd like it to be put out there so that maybe more friends and family will get on board with maybe there's some truth to what I've been talking about. But that's something that they need, not necessarily what I need or want. But another point you make about high strangeness that I like is you say that the possibility that these persistent extraordinary events, sightings of everything from serpents in the water to mysterious winged beasts to otherworldly beings to gnomes to Bigfoot may be the result of perspective and of these things intermittently localizing in our reality. We talked about that a bit, but one of my curiosities is what are these mysterious winged beasts or gnomes or pilots of the crafts doing when they aren't being seen? when they aren't, as you put it, localizing in our reality? Do they mate? Do they have a home? Do they have a reason or even control over when or why they're seen? Like, are these temporary thought forms made solid, which is one perspective a lot of people share, or are they truly living lives from birth to death somewhere else that just sometimes bleed over?
0: My assumption and This is really getting into speculative territory because we just don't know. But my assumption is that these beings have their own lives, purposes, life cycles. They may be experiencing us as anomalies. (laughs) Um, The notion of whether humans exist may be a hotly debated topic in some other dimension. (laughs) I like it. And, you know. (laughs) somebody's having this very conversation about you know whether you and I actually exist mm-hmm. or just a fly on the windshield or something and the physicist urban schrodinger when he devised his thought experiment schrodinger's cat made the insistent and airtight case that you had to allow for a dead alive cat you had to allow for these simultaneous surreal outcomes and then in the 1950s other physicists including Hugh Everett postulated that you'd have to actually allow for an infinite number of cats playing out, each with its own existence and needs. And to the cat, the cat is experiencing a singularity. If you had a craft, a spacecraft that was moving at or near light speed, we say that time slows down for that traveler. Well, it doesn't slow down from his perspective. He's just going on with life. It slows down from our perspective as the observer. So we have this very different kind of relationship. And this is literally true. You know, we don't have to postulate an object traveling at light speed. In fact, astronauts in our own era, obviously moving nowhere near the velocity of light, do in fact experience minute reductions in the aging process. It's real. It's measurable. This is no longer theoretical. Mm -hmm. They don't experience time slowing down. I mean, of course, time would be slowing down too minutely for them to really experience it. But we can easily extrapolate that the guy in the imagined spacecraft doesn't experience time slowing down. It's I, the observer from Earth, who experience that effect, that phenomena, because of our differences in perspective and in surrounding conditions. So from that, I would assume that the object's being observed, although it doesn't preclude other possibilities like materialized thought forms, as you were alluding, or call them tulpas or egregores or what have you, it doesn't preclude that. But it seems to me that if we were talking in terms of an interdimensional being, that being is having its own experiences. And that may include us as anomalies who existence is doubted
2: hmm. <laughs> I like it. Yes. A lot of these stories I've heard where people do see a little green man or a gnome or something weird. It's like when they see it, it turns around and it realizes it's been seen and it has a bit of shock and surprise on its own face. It's like, oh, shit, you see me. I got to fix this. Right. So I don't know if they have a lot of control over when they are seen. They seem to be able to go back to an unseen state of their own volition. But yeah, I I wonder about that. And your comment about humans being a hotly debated topic somewhere else reminds me of a story that's fuzzy in my mind. I believe it was a Yuri Geller story where he was remote viewing some base that had non-human creatures walking around operating in there. And he pulled out when it seemed like they saw him, that they noticed they were being watched. It might not be Yuri Geller, but some prominent remote viewer had that experience. And it made me think that that could be the script flip on what we see out in the woods sometime. And uh Gordon White, a guy who I know you know, a sure. buddy of mine, he has made the point to me, like if remote viewing is real and ESP is real, who's to say it's tied to this planet? If there's other life out there and a billion other planets and systems Maybe occasionally what we experience as high strangeness, Fortean type things is actually the same cognitive abilities we seem to know we have coming from somewhere that we don't know exists.
0: It's interesting. In encounter experiences, the other being may be as disturbed by us as we are by them. Yes and um, maybe Bigfoot doesn't want to be seen, and there are actually very good reasons why Bigfoot would not want to be seen and we hear a twig snap in the night, and we think, What's that? You know, well, the other being may be having that same experience. We have a great deal of trouble from time to time, even in this digitized interconnected world, understanding figures from other cultures and You would think by this point, we're all at least familiar enough with one another to grasp what meaning is being communicated or what somebody is trying to get across. People don't even agree on an event that was witnessed yesterday. And five people can witness the same event and have completely different takeaways and completely different emotions around it. How much more so would that lack of understanding be heightened? if we were dealing with a being from another dimension, another intersection of time. So the the problems of understanding and motive could be vast.
2: Mm. Yeah, provocative, provocative. And I did read Miracle Club, but I wanted you to touch on it because I think it's such an interesting idea, And I'm curious if, since it's been written, there are any results that have sprung out of it? And just tell the people kind of what the premise was for that and and let us know if anything has come out of pushing that out into the world.
0: Well, Miracle Club was also a very special book to me because that was my first explicitly practical book. I write as both a historian and a practical seeker. I call myself a believing historian. My first two books, Occult America, One Simple Idea, were pretty straightforward works of history. But Miracle Club, which came out in 2018, was the first time I sort of stood up on the soapbox and said, well, this is what I believe, this is what I practice, this is what I work with. And in many ways, it's an exploration of new thought or mind metaphysics. But I also, in that book, really made an effort to describe a theory of what's happening when thoughts produce actual consequences, when they concretize in the world in ways that go beyond the cognitive and the motor skill with which we're familiar. In the final chapter of that book, I worked with the interdimensional thesis. I talk about why I use the word select versus manifest. And I try to really get into the inner guts of what might be going on if my thesis is right, that thoughts are causative. So that was a very special book for me because it was the first directly practical book that I ever wrote.
2: Mm -hmm. And if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a couple of years, but there is a specific time of day that you suggest to the reader, hey, why don't we all
0: use this time of day to think about positive thoughts and see what happens? That's right. At 3 p.m. Eastern each day, I enter into a few moments of basically holding a wish of private reflection and I invite people to do that with me. That is all it takes to be a member of the Miracle Club. The Miracle Club is a title that has historical roots in the Theosophy movement. It was a small salon of occult seekers that eventually mushroomed into the Theosophical Society and I honor them and these people are heroes to me and to gain membership in the Miracle Club. It's just as simple as wanting to be a member. And if you want to participate in a group activity, each day at 3 p.m. Eastern, you can participate in it with me. I take a few moments to hold reflections for myself, for other people. Hold a wish, basically. You can do it in an elevator while you're driving, while you're working, just take a break. That's when we meet, it's open to everybody. (laughs) Very cool.
2: Well, hopefully we add some new members and you're clearly seasoned because you would have done that about
0: an hour ago in the middle of this very interview, I think. You'd be surprised. I have paused interviews <laughs> <laughs> to do it. But nowadays, I'm, I'm a little more respecting of the medium that I'm part of, but I do do it just about every day at 3 p.m. Eastern.
2: Awesome. Well, that is very cool. And Mitch, I envy your work ethic. You've done some Really important work, and you've brought spirit back to the minds of men, and I salute you for it. Uh, I think people know how to get books, but remind them of some of your favorite works, your website, and anything else you got coming down the pike.
0: Sure. My website is MitchHorowitz.com. I'm on Twitter at MitchHorowitz, Instagram at MitchHorowitz23. In February, I'm teaching a four part online class with the Theosophical Society. On parapsychology. So, if you're interested in some of these ideas about psychical research, precognition, some of the other things we've been discussing, that's going to be really exciting. Current book is Uncertain Places. I have another book that's relatively new called Daydream Believer, which is also a book that means a lot to me, which explores some of these questions of mind metaphysics, including how to access some of this stuff when a person is under strain and facing difficulty. And the whole kind of post magic thesis is explored in that book as well writing a new book which is up for pre-order called modern occultism massive work of history very exciting to me a lot of caffeine went into that one <laughs> and um i'm working on the last 3 chapters right now actually
2: wow wow busy as ever but well i mean man thanks for taking the time to to do this with me this was very smooth i feel like a real professional almost and you make a good I dance are, partner. You my man,
0: and I dug it. Thank you. No, I really dug it, and I, I really appreciate the space you create for talking about these issues in such a free way.
2: Ah, too kind. Well, it's been a pleasure. We got a lot of good stuff to chew on. Thanks for your time and take care.
0: Pleasure. Thank you, man.
2: Hell yes, people. After many years and many requests, Mitch is on THC. <laughs> And also a big thanks to Flophouse Jr., who turned 60 earlier this month and wanted to hear his version of the THC theme song used for it, and I was happy to do that because it's a good one. Sounds almost like a Pink Floyd-inspired version, but I like it, thanks man, and happy birthday. And good stuff in this one today, lots to like. Mitch is clearly a pretty thoughtful guy, and when he's in his wheelhouse, I think he's a lot of fun to listen to. He's a great writer who also has a real talent for naming and branding his work. I appreciate that kind of thing. Occult America was a great read, and The Miracle Club is a fun idea. Since it came out and I read it, I definitely think about it when I look at the clock and it happens to be that time. And it feels like a little secret society of people trying to nudge the field in the right direction at the same time. And I hope some of you take up the practice if you think about it. Obviously, it seems like people would also expect me to say something about our little disagreement or just the disparaging words towards conspiracy theorists that I took some issue with. He has some other quotes, too, like this one that I took down. He says, eventually, almost all conspiracy theories, as they are practiced in the 21st century, lead to an exaltation of self and a suspicion of others. That is the primary problem I have with the conspiracist outlook when it is practiced as a kind of dogma. And again, I would amend that with suspicion of power, actually, not other. In fact, to me, the conspiracy-minded see a bit more clearly just how much of the world is intentionally used to divide us in any way possible. Race, class, religion, age, sex, etc., etc., And the conspiracy-minded person would see a far more united humanity than a lot of other, say, worldviews, I guess. And the conspiracy-minded would see that the poor and struggling are actually swimming up a near-impossible stream sometimes, and thus would have empathy for those who can't make it. So because I feel like we acknowledge how hard and dishonest the big machine is and how many traps a person can fall into... It actually seems like a humbling worldview in a lot of ways. But I wouldn't say that that statement from Mitch is wrong. It certainly has some truth to it. An exalted sense of self can be a part of it if you don't check it. Magic is the same way, though. People warn against doing a few successful rituals and then seeing yourself as the center of the universe and developing a god complex. So to me, that's a human ego issue that people of all types deal with, not just a conspiracy worldview issue per se. And really, if you explore the conspiracy sphere long enough, you arrive at the bottom of the rabbit hole and essentially learn that love is the answer, that love is our best tool, and that putting more novelty, creativity, art, love, positivity in the world is how we move the needle and win the game. As much shit as people talk on them, I've heard both David Ike and Alex Jones pontificate on those themes many times. But like most countercultures throughout time, right now there's a big smear campaign against us, trying to link us to domestic terrorists and trying to paint us as unhinged. So when I say we try to elevate that subculture around here, I do mean it, though I guess you could hold up a few shows from the past and say, really, how does this show elevate anything? Sure, but it's not about how wild or taboo some of the ideas and themes might be, it's how we approach them and the general tone of it all. I guess I can only say what I try to do and others can judge how well it's done. But I just think ultimately Mitch might have absorbed a little bit of that smear campaign But he also was troubled by an event that helped to cement those feelings, too. And that is unfortunate, but you can't control everyone or deny that a troubled person could go down a violent path, nor can you judge a wider group of people because of the actions of a few. Conspiracy material is not for the faint of heart. It's pretty raw. It's not for the weak mind. Much like magic, it does need to be approached with a certain stability and kind of a thick skin in a lot of ways. Conspiracy thinking brought me to understand that I shouldn't rely on the system, that the water piped into my house is not fit to drink, that there are many foods in the grocery store that are not fit to eat. Psychedelics are banned because they get us out of baseline consciousness, and I am best served by taking personal responsibility for my own station in life. I find all these things to be useful and positive, and I find the general conspiracy worldview adoption to be a rite of passage, a sort of metamorphosis of seeing through a carefully crafted bubble of lies and illusion. Very Gnostic, actually. If I took the advice of the system and the authority figures of my past that were supposedly just looking out for me, I'd probably be dead or at least deeply unhappy in a safe retail job with a mountain of student loan debt and no way out. But regardless, I questioned him about it, and he said, yeah, maybe it was harsh. Maybe I was reactionary based on a specific event. Maybe I mischaracterized a little, and I'll think on it. And that's amazing. That's all anyone can ask. And today, with everyone digging their heels in to their particular camps. It was really a refreshing thing to hear. But he gave me a lot to think about today, too. His essays in uncertain places contain a ton of aha moments and interesting things to reflect on. And honestly, I know there are figures in the magic community, peers of Mitch's, who would have advised him to not talk to me because of my conspiracy card carrying. In fact, I expect a couple of them to mouth off as soon as this gets posted because they're so simple-minded and predictable. So that's just another reason why I gotta give Mitch props for just rolling with it and being willing to have the conversation. So I got a lot of respect for Mitch and I'm a fan. And I consider this one of the good ones that I'll probably revisit from time to time. And I certainly hope we can do it again because there's no doubt he'll be churning out many more good books that we'll probably enjoy unpacking. Of course, as always, there is a second hour for PLUS members, In today's we talked about Mitch's analysis of the third wave occult revival, elaborating on occult history in America and that first and second wave, Manly P. Hall and the secret teachings of all ages, mystical America and American myth-making, Edgar Cayce and how to read the Akashic Record, the usefulness of building a personal god squad, cornerstones of a good magical practice, Mitch's first-hand energetic experiences in Egyptian subterranean chambers, probably my favorite part of the whole episode, and we got into some of the ideas behind Mitch's other works. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and start it all off with a free 7-day trial with full access to the archive and all the bonuses, and keep anything you download, even after you cancel. Hard to beat that. In higher side news, <laughs> I'm just staying the course. I have an idea to launch a little memorabilia out into the world that I think THC fans would be interested in trying to get myself a little relocation bonus, but I'll come up with some sort of pre-roll notice about that when it's ready. Until then, I guess we should look at the meetup calendar, a free and open place for us outside-the-box THC fans to find each other and make that all-important sanctuary in such troubled times. Some of the upcoming events would be... January 22nd, the meetup at Smoke and Joe's Barbecue in Guatemala. Also January 22nd, the Eastern Iowa meetup at Park Farm Winery. January 26th, a meetup at Slab City here in California. And January 28th, the third Asheville, North Carolina THC meetup. This one at the Cursus Cream Brewery. Then kicking off February, there's the Conspiracy Theorizers on February 4th in High Springs, Florida, and the big one, the Higher Side Rune Soup Meetup in Wellington, New Zealand at a place called Foxglove on February 11th, a great event to celebrate that overlap between the magic curious and the conspiracy minded and a good time to drink a little drink with the man himself, the great Gordon White. I think I'm going to at least zoom in for a few minutes because I'll be at Mount Shasta with the Gramerica guys during that time. So you can come have a digital drink with me, too. Let's see how strong the tribe is in New Zealand because I really don't know. (laughs) But that's what we've got. Nothing after February 11th. So if you're curious how strong the tribe is in your neck of the woods, hop onto the calendar, make an event, and I'll plug it and then you'll know. But thanks for listening. Plus members, big old cheers to you guys and to Mitch. Let him know if you enjoyed this. I'll catch you next time. I've done my part. Your move, Miracle Club, Miracle Makers, Consciousness, Curious, Psychonauts, and Movers and Shakers of the third occult revival. Your fucking move.
1: This is important, hear what I say. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth Knocked on your door While well, I still can To ask you a question Cause I know your head Is still in the sand Don't be sheep till you slaughter For the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed But you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? You say that we're so screwed but we don't have a choice It seems we're stuck here, but you can find noses, drown out the noise, now use that altar end up your magic game and listen to THC, you know you go with the entities if you ever see the UFO Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life, oppressed oppressed, but you're getting Say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we? Of love